I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. This is a really fun conversation with my friend, the art dealer, Marion Boski. She and I talk about how she found her way to art, how we both thought we would be lawyers and she actually went to law school, and why she loves art. Some pretty great stories about opening her first space and the artists that she has had relationships with and that she has had the immense pleasure of bringing to a broader audience. By the time I graduated law school, whenever I wasn't studying, I was with them. And I started working for the ACLU. I was doing reproductive rights litigation, which is amazing. But of course, that didn't pay anything. And I ended up being a public interest scholar, which, you know, does not pay anything. So I started selling artworks that my friends were making to my richer friends. And after about a year and a half of that, after I passed the bar, I realized that these are artists that they might not have galleries, but there's definitely interest. And maybe, you know, there's something we can do together. Thanks so much for tuning in. Marianne, I'd love to start out by asking you why you love art. Oh, goodness. Um, I started loving art from the time I was little, probably because I had undiagnosed dyslexia and I was a visual Mm. learner. So anything that I could learn by either memorizing or looking at images, I was super quick. Anything that took more analytical processing, I was very slow. So over the years through my education, um, art history became sort of my way into everything from, you know, the Bible to European history, American history, you know, war, um, famine. It was, you know, the way I was able to even have a chronology for history was through images. So I think that's why I love art. It's just like the great explainer, but it's also the great question poser. It's such a great way of expressing that. And one of the reasons why I love having these conversations and sharing these conversations with an audience is because people come to art in all sorts of different ways and they have different needs that are met by art. I love being able to share that to let people know that there's there's no one way. Yeah. And I think it's interesting having grown up in a household that collected, which, you know, is sort of a late seventies, early eighties, kind of collecting. Um, None of the art that my parents were interested in really spoke to me. So it wasn't necessarily having grown up around art that made me interested in wanting to work with artists, which is, I think, surprising sometimes. I was definitely exposed because my father was super curious and had sort of grown up with nothing, made it to New York, had some success. And at that time, if you were successful and you were New York and Jewish, you were part of a community that was buying impressionist artwork. 
and which, you know, my mother really liked because it was pretty and, you know, it would come into our house and I would look at it and think that has nothing to do with what's going on here. So, so it was all, it was a combination of, you know, how is this relevant and also why is it relevant? So it was kind of a good spur to being curious and to even having, you know, like a sense of looking, I will say like that comes from having been dragged to auction houses and galleries. I have three brothers, none of them were interested. So I was the one that got to get towed along, which was amazing. So I did develop like a sense of the value of looking, I think, from the time I was little. Super interesting. I've been doing this work around decading. And a big part of it is about inheritance and this idea of like a cultural inheritance or family inheritance and, you know, the good and the bad that that comes with that. You know, I also grew up in a house filled with art. It came from my grandmother. It didn't come from my parents. And my parents were sort of actively hostile towards art. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. And what kind of art was it? Well, not dissimilar to to what you grew up with, but more American. So Hudson River School of Painting, largely, and early American painting, and a little bit of Dutch, 17th century Dutch painting, and a lot of decorative arts. And it, it came without stories. So it was up to me to put the stories around the objects. And I don't know how much I really looked at them because they were always there. And so I kind of started to think of art from a young age as as company, like objects that keep you company. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that totally. I mean, I definitely would wander around our house alone, you know, before I went off to boarding school and stare at things and just try to imagine, you know, imagine based on the date or, you know, the visual content. I just found that that period of work was it was almost mean <laughs> to, to look at because it was so pretty. Like, I just felt like it was um, like somebody was trying to make it all look nicer than it really was. You know, like those women in those beautiful frocks probably hadn't washed their underwear in two weeks, you know, <laughs> so, but everything was meant to look a certain way. And over time, you know, as my parents' interests sort of grew separate, my father's interests became more challenging and he liked more difficult art that wasn't about necessarily being pretty, but those things would come home and be put in a closet (laughs) because my mother didn't like them. So I used to also rummage the closet, (laughs) which was fun. Do you remember the first artist that you met and could you tell that story? Oh yeah, that's, um, so I, the first artist I met who was a living in-person artist, was my senior year in college. I had gone to Duke and studied art history there and transferred midway through to Middlebury College. And I had an amazing professor at Middlebury who was actually Bob Gober's professor as well. Bob went to Middlebury. And so he was on my radar from a very young age because of that professor. She, as my thesis advisor senior year, wanted me to, as part of my thesis, at least interview one living artist, just as like an extra layer of research, even though my thesis was about Picasso's illustrations of Lisa Strada had nothing to do with living artists. Mm. And it was a great exercise. So there was a local artist in Westchester near where I lived, who was an older man, and he would make these bronze sculptures of horses and busts and things very traditional. But meeting him and having him kind of walk me through and talk to me about why he made things and how he made them was the first thing that kind of 
like grounded me to the fact that there were makers and there were makers who were accessible because also when I graduated from college in 1989, I'm sure we're similar in age. You couldn't go to the career counseling office and, and find out about anything in the art world, whether it was graduate programs or jobs because they didn't exist. It was academia or nothing. So having that kind of like little bit of a hint that there's this like crackling of humans that are making art still. It took me a while to find that in real life after college and after grad school or during grad school, but it opened the door to the possibility of it. Because we weren't raised to think that you could be an artist and, and, you know, make a living and have anything really to contribute other than, you know, uh, who knows, you know, cultural capital of some kind. But those were not careers that any of our parents were encouraging. Oh, no. Actually, my parents actively discouraged me from a career in art. I was supposed to go to law school. Uh, mm-hmm. I did go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was the greatest. I'm, I'm happy I did. Not because my parents, you know, forced me. I actually I made the decision, honestly, because I came to New York in 89. The art world was dead. The world was dead. The market was dead. And I was, you know, working part of the time at Sotheby's, in the Impressionist Department, working for a private dealer on the Upper East Side. There was just nothing going on. I never was meeting artists or seeing artists. And I decided that if I wanted to have a life around art, that maybe I needed to go out and make some money. Then I have access to art. So I applied to law school and got loans from Fordham University. So I ended up going to Fordham Law work my way through there. And my friends were downtown, they were artists. And by the time I graduated law school, whenever I wasn't studying, I was with them. And I started working for the ACLU. I was doing reproductive rights litigation, which is amazing. But of course that didn't pay anything. And I ended up being a public interest scholar, which, you know, does not pay anything. So I started selling artworks um, that my friends were making to my richer friends. And after about a year and a half of that, after I passed the bar, I realized that these are artists that they might not have galleries, but there's definitely interest. And maybe, you know, there's something we can do together. And uh, Lisa Scavage was really one of the most, you know, formative people in my gallery evolution. I really credit her with sort of helping me fashion what was even the existence of a gallery out of nothing. And it wasn't that she had tons of experience. She had been out of you know grad school for a while, had bounced around between a couple of galleries, had not found a home, didn't think I was going to be her home because who am I? I'm, I'm nobody, nothing. But we really just, we stuck together and we forged ahead and it grew. And I stopped practicing law altogether pretty quickly. But I really credit Lisa with so much of like forcing me to challenge myself in terms of content concept, mission, that art, like I never thought that art spoke to me because it was pretty. The first time I went to her studio, I was really kind of floored and put like put off. And I went home and I thought about that so much because I kept thinking about it. And then I realized, well, that's what I want to be looking at is the kind of thing that, you know, you need audacity to make and you need Mm. to be willing to risk humiliation, embarrassment, whatever it is, whatever cost there is to sort of put your vision out there. She's also somebody that really taught me that artists are usually at least five to 10 years ahead of us. They're thinking about things that are already affecting them that we haven't felt yet. 
And I think that the benefit that we have of being able to be in the studios and getting to know the artists, it's not like, oh, you have such a great eye. You picked this out of the blue. You know, when you're in those studios and you're making that effort, you're seeing what they're doing, what they're looking at, what they're reading. It's an incredible trigger to do more and to raise the bar. So uh, Lisa was the beginning of that for me. And then Sarah Z. Murakami was also just mind-blowing genius. He's not my favorite person, but he is a genius. You know, unfortunately, I think a lot of people have missed the kind of import that he really has had on art history because he was dismissed a bit as this commercial guy when he was really, you know, using the commercial world to, you know, put another stitch in the fabric of art history and move Warhol from the store windows into the galleries and museums and all of those kinds of ideating that you get to do with the artists on the phone and in person is where I think we get to have the most beautiful experiences doing this. There's so much in in what you shared and this idea of audacity I'd love to underscore that. I think there's so many ways to be audacious in the art world. And some of it is, of course, through the subject matter that artists are painting, including Lisa. And for our listeners, Lisa is an artist that you and I have in common, you giving her credit for pushing you to start the gallery, really. Not just mm-hmm. start a gallery. She, the bar was so high, the bar that she set for me. You know, this is an artist who had no other options. She was not remotely going to show with me. <laughs> I had so much to prove before, even though she was like, you know, living on $137 in her bank account. Like that's audacity too. So yeah. being willing to starve, you know, to protect the context even of your, your output was amazing to me. I learned so much from that. I have a story that I tell sometimes, which is kind of a dressing down, if you will, or or a learning, depending on what kind of language to put around it. It's Diana Thater. Many years later, I mentioned it when I introduced her when she was giving a lecture at the Berkeley Art Museum. And then we went on to do a major exhibition together at the Aspen Art Museum and at the LA County Museum of Art simultaneously. I wanted to put her in the first exhibition I ever curated, which was in 1994 in Paris. It was to be Doug Aiken, Diana Thater, and I think Jessica Bronson. Anyway, I did end up showing Doug Aiken at the time, and that was his first show in Europe. And at the time, Diana wanted a certain way for her work to be shown in Paris. And I mean, this is a long time ago. We didn't have the the control across time and space that we have now. There was no FaceTiming to check installations or, you know, <laughs> different ways of guaranteeing that things would be the way you wanted them to be. It, a lot of it was kind of a leap of faith. And she was not flexible in terms of the monitors that she wanted her work presented on. And and I couldn't guarantee it from New York before going to, to Paris. And she refused to be in the show. And at the time, I was so upset. It's not like it doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, I have stories like that as well that you you think, oh, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot over that. But that's why they're great artists, because they're willing to shoot themselves in the temple over that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I mean, I was right. She was right. (laughs) Yeah, they are right when they, you know, the artists that do that and hold tough and are willing to take the hit, whatever that hit is. 
it's a beautiful thing. I, I remember, you know, another artist who was very much in demand that I was, um, which was Nara. I was working with him for almost 14 years. And there was a big museum show that was coming up. You know, the director of the museum had their budget and it was, I think it was around, you know, whatever, $1 million budget for this sort of survey exhibition. And, and there was a collector who had been collecting Nara's work and had been dying to have Nara paint a portrait of his child. And I kept saying, you know, to the museum, the museum director said, just ask him because then we can ask him for a donation. And I was like, I will ask him for a donation for the show, but I, I just, I don't, I don't know if I can ask Nara. So I contact the collector and I said, are you, you know, are you interested in supporting the show? It'd be really amazing. I know you're a big Nara person. And he was like, well, this would be my opportunity. How about this? I'll fund the whole show if he paints a portrait of my kid. And the director said, done. Right. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, no I can't. Yeah. No. And what do you mean? No. And I said, yeah. I can't. If I ask Nara to do that, he's going to think I have no idea who he is. If yeah. I even ask him that question, he's going to assume he and I know nothing about each other. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even ask. <laughs> yeah. But it's just such an interesting you know, and the collector was like, this is so stupid. It'd be so easy for him to do it. Why wouldn't he just do it? You know, it's, that's what makes a real artist is that they don't, it's, they're not in it. They don't have the same motivations that normal people do. They just don't, they're not motivated by those things. Well, what you're talking about, Marianne, is integrity, you know, and, and that's the very essence of, of these stories courage, guts, and also integrity. You know, I often say I don't have any special skills. Like I'm not a lawyer, like I'm, I'm not a CPA. I, I don't have those skills. All I have is, is my integrity. And, you know, once you bend to someone else's wishes, right, which are not in the best interest of the artist or the institution, then you don't have it anymore. Our job is to stay out of the way and to bring opportunities, you know, and then execute them as well as possible. And the artists know best. Their asses are on the line more than ours. You know, when you curate a show or I put together a show, you know, I want them to have intention with every aspect of it, even though it can be really frustrating and really difficult, but that's our job. Yeah, it is. And our job is, oftentimes saying no, you know, the no's are sometimes maybe every time more important than the yeses. Yeah. I use that line a lot. And I think especially for, you know, younger artists as they're chased around by every, you know, kind of hip <laughs> person that the no's are, they have to say no. And it's hard to say no to things that are seductive, but mm -hmm. you have to say no. You have, and that, that's where Lisa, like I think about Lisa, you know, that she's like, I'd rather eat dog food out of a can. Thanks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you can hear her saying it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's not a metaphor. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and, you know, and she really means it and, um, and it has served her work well. Yeah. Tell the story of how you picked your first space. What did, what did it look like? What did it feel like? When I first started selling the art, like to friends and stuff, I had been connected with Patrick Callery, who has since passed away. And he had a little fourth floor walk up 
space that he lived in and had a you know gallery in and it was on green street so and he was kind enough to let me like plunk down in there so i would like you know do work in there and meet artists and people who were coming through and you know just like have meetings and when things with lisa when she put it to me like are you gonna fish or cut bait because i'm not doing a show in this dump <laughs> so <laughs> fourth floor walk up, which was actually not a dump. And it was very much in keeping with the time. And this is 1996, right? Actually between spring and broom, which was pretty hip, right? Yeah. But fourth floor walk up, no natural light and whatever. But on green between broom and grand, Nicole Clagsburn had a little gallery there. And we got wind that she wanted to downsize. And I thought, what? It's 1994. Like, this is the time to upsize. Like, we should, this is the time we go for it. And Nicole said, you know what? It's just not, not how I want to operate. And Nicole has integrity. She operates the way she feels works for her. And she said, if you want this space, I'll hand it over to you and you can take over the lease. So that's what we did. And it was super scary because um, I'd never had overhead like that before. And it was, I mean, it was small compared to what I think about now, what people spend, even startup galleries. It was, it was tiny, but it was really scary. And um, we had to do a little bit of renovation. I got my first loan, which was also kind of hilarious because getting a loan as a woman, <laughs> yeah. starting a gallery was like a laughable thing, which of course just irked me and made me want it more. And I finally got it. <laughs> and, and then I remember Friedrich Petzl and I were super close. He's like, how'd you do that? He's like, I mean, I don't believe in dead. I'm German, but how'd you do that? <laughs> Where do I get that? <laughs> and then Friedrich and I started working together because I had this little you know, line of credit that, you know, both of us were like, okay, it's free money. It's 9%, but who cares? <laughs> we're going for it. And we did. So, and he and I started doing little shows together. And um, so I went to the bank that I'd gotten my first little loan with and, and convinced them to expand the line. And we went and we bought a group of things from Thomas Borgman, who's German. He had been a gallerist with Gisela Capitaine and then became just a collector. And those things were Chris Woolward paintings, Bob Gober sculptures, Cindy Sherman film stills. I mean, it goes mm -hmm. on and on. It was an incredible, incredible group of works. And I mean, Jeff Koons, Pink Panther. <laughs> um, so, oh God. so we had this stash of works that, you know, all in, we had paid very little for, because again, it was 1997, but we needed to move the merch because neither of us had other resources. You know, we were, we started like, I sold a, a Richard Prince, you know, there was a Richard Prince that you know, we got very cheap. I sold it for 55,000 and thought I was a genius. It was, you know, 1988 mm -hmm. joke painting, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, Chris Wool's Fool in the dark blue, we sold that for a hundred thousand dollars. And we thought we were geniuses because we'd only paid Amazing. 40 for it, you know, and we took our winnings and, you know, I kept like wanting to keep stuff and wanting to borrow against it more. <laughs> And Friedrich was like, we're not doing that. We're in this 50-50. We're out. We need to sell this stuff. So that's what we did. And we made you know, a significant profit. I mean, relative to what that list of works would be worth today, all in, we borrowed 1.2 million. No, actually, there was an extra. So 1.5 million, including the Pink Panther, we borrowed. And you know, our yield from that in a you know, two-year period was about three and a half to 4 million. 
And so we were able to operate our galleries in Soho and find our spaces together in Chelsea and move within four years of opening. You know, so all of a sudden I get to meet these artists and they see that, you know, I'm acting as a custodian for their work and I really care. And then the young, you know, the artists like the Lisa's and these other people are like, okay, well, I don't mind being in that company. That's pretty good. So the context of what we were able to build for both of our galleries, it lured in artists and it lured in collectors. Uh, Ginny Gertz from um, Sam Langetz in Germany contacted me out of the blue, a major collector in in Germany. She had been looking for a gober sink. Did I have a gober sink? She heard I had a gober sink. you know, at the time, so we sold her this incredible sink and um, she was like, you need to sign a confidentiality. I'm not, you can never tell anyone what I paid for this because it's embarrassing. And, and it was not, I mean, truly like relative to now, it's not nothing, <laughs> nothing, but she was, you know, she wanted it and it felt dangerous, you know, but it was, you know, a couple hundred grand. So <laughs> yeah. and amazing, but it was a big price at the time. So, but those were the kind of people that all of a sudden, you know, Friedrich and I are more on their radar and they start looking at some of our younger artists and coming to us for those artists, Coons, Gober. And that context, Katie Noland, Richard Prince, it was just an amazing opportunity. And we tried to be extremely respectful too. I mean, with, you know, artists that were represented right around the corner, whether it was Lauren Augustine, we let them know exactly what we had immediately, gave them the chance to come in and, you know, and buy it. Same thing with Metro. Like we wanted everyone, we didn't want to like try to screw over anybody. So we were really fortunate and lucky to have this and we wanted to do it in a respectful way. So I think that we made friends, not enemies, which was good. Yeah. You then went on to build an incredible gallery with an amazing architect and a personal living space also integrated. It's really, I think, a model for how to do something incredibly beautiful and flexible. And I'd love you to tell that story. Every step of the way for everybody in every world, it's fraught. There are challenges. I had been looking for a space and hadn't thought to do, you know, the live work thing at all. And when I found this, the parking lot on 24th street um, was not on the market. And I found out about it through somebody who was going to buy the land. And then I was going to, I had the right to build up to 50 feet tall. So it was basically two to three floors. If it's a ga- like galleries, it's going to be two floors. It was apartments. You can make the ceiling heights lower, right? So I had been reaching out to different galleries about maybe taking, you know, the second floor or I had been on the second floor for the first five years in Chelsea and Friedrich had been downstairs. And I liked that because I was more like the little sister. I started four, three or four years after him and I wasn't really ready to be on 24th street either, but after looking and looking and looking, it was the first and kind of only opportunity that made sense. And it was on 24th street, which scared me because I was then really the little sister I bought the land and started conceiving of the project with Deborah Burke, who was amazing. And, you know, Lisa actually helped me with lighting and, you know, we, we constructed ceiling heights that would accommodate certain sculptures that Murakami was working on for shows. I was able to, I sold my apartment in Tribeca and which had also gone up in value because Tribeca had changed dramatically. So I got very lucky there and I was able to buy the land. And then I had to take a construction loan to do the building. I was so scared. And Jerry Spire, who is a wonderful client and patron and art 
supporter helped me so much. And he said, you can't have another gallery here. You need to live here. It'll be too complicated for you if it's, if you divide this up. And I was like, I can't, I can't afford to build this building by myself. He was like, yes, you can. Let's crunch the numbers. I, I thank him every day for that. He kind of, you know, forced me to have the courage to do it on my own. So I went ahead, we had our plans and then Lisa left the gallery and <laughs> I was devastated. And then a year later, before we even had our permits and we had gotten into, well, we were maybe just starting construction, Murakami left the gallery. So the two shows I was supposed to open with in 2006 that were going to pay back the construction loan (laughs) were both gone. And on top of that, now I'm on 24th street and I have, I have good artists. I have a good program, but you know, this is 2006. Well, it was actually 2005. Lisa left in 2005, Murakami in 2006. And I still had Nara um, and, you know, Sarah Z. I had other good artists, but, you know, I had a space that really was more than my program. And that felt off. And I think, you know, the, the perception from the outside, too, is that, oh, she's off. She thinks she's bigger than she is. You know, why does she need a building like this? And, you know, and I was very, like, uncomfortable and sensitive about that. And I knew that I was going to have to completely revamp my program and really start again. Plus I had the weight of the debt. And so, you know, I did something that I never thought I would do, which is I, I sold a Murakami and I sold Elise Scavage. And, you know, those are works that I had bought from them early, early. They were gracious enough to let me buy them. Uh, in Murakami's case, he needed the cash and um, wanted me to buy it. That was my chance. And that's what, you know, got me through to the building. But aside from getting the building up and running, now I had to figure out how to not have my consigliere, Lisa's gone, right? (laughs) And how to not have Murakami, who is, you know, the person who keeps my brain so rattled and active. And I have these other amazing artists. I need to figure this out. And I I remember so clearly when we got up and open, I had a, a long talk with Donald Moffat who I think is an incredibly still undervalued, underrated genius and amazing artist. You know, I said, you know, what really moves you? What do you, now that we have this opening, now that these kind of, these artists that have a sort of super stylized aspect to their work are not in the program and you are not kind of haunted by that because artists in the program were a bit haunted by that. They were kind of taken over by all the, you know, the bravado of those, those big artists. So it was an opportunity to, you know, take a right or a left turn. And, you know, I had everybody offering me Chinese artists that were shiny and and Japanese artists that were, you know, Japanese Jeff Koons, because it's like, oh, that's what you must like. And it has nothing to, I mean, aesthetics are actually really challenging. It's about ideas and about vision and the aesthetics kind of come with the territory and they have to be part of it, but they're not the driving factor. The consensus after talking with Donald and a couple of other artists is there was a lot of influence from Arte Povera. Post-war Italian art was on a lot of their minds. And that couldn't have been more opposite than what I had been showing. And I thought that was really interesting. So I did a deep dive. And I also, I had done a lot of work um, in the Gutai and High Red Center area because I had had Murakami and Nara and had spent so much time in Japan. I was deeply interested in 
the Gutai movement and High Red Center. And that happens to be a parallel time with Arte Povera. And the works, while they come from completely different frameworks in, in terms of culture and politics, they really do have a symbiosis. And the Italian artists were seeing shows in Japan. The Japanese, you know, were seeing shows at Tartaruga. And there was a dialogue that was, you know, from far away, but it was happening. So it was a very easy, natural shift for me to start wandering more into the history um, in Italy. And so that's where I started getting my kind of obsession. I did the Fontana show in a conversation with Donald. I took that uptown space because I wanted to have like a decrepit old townhouse that felt like Tartaruga Gallery from, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s in Italy. And then, of course, I got questioned by people like, what's your secondary market space uptown? And I, like, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I actually got waitlisted from Basel one year because of my, quote, secondary market space uptown. And I, I didn't really know what that meant. Huh. But um, I was actually just really interested in doing kind of exhibitions that were more mashups of time and space and geography to kind of bring the threads together more for myself and for whoever was you know interested in coming to see also. And so that was a period of six years. And then it was time to, the the space next to me in Chelsea became available and it made sense to just expand laterally and not have the two locations. So, and of course, right as I'm closing my 64th street space, Barbara Gladstone moves in next door, (laughs) you know, and and a lot of galleries moved uptown. So my timing can be off sometimes. I mean, look at Aspen. I opened Aspen when, and now so many dealers are in Aspen, right? So, and people think I'm crazy when I do these things and then I'm not so crazy in the end. Yes, definitely not. Definitely not. One of the things that I think is also really interesting about you and, and you reference this kind of indirectly is that in addition to being a gallerist and selling art, you're also a collector. But I think you have been for a long time and not just of the artists, you know, that you show or have shown. And I'd love to ask you how you approach collecting and what you have in your bedroom. That's my favorite question to ask people who live with art. (laughs) Um, Well, all right. So I'll tell you in my bedroom, I have um, a Donald Moffat painting from his first series of the shag paintings that were shown at Stephen Friedman in London. And it's a deep, deep, deep brown, looks like a piece of carpet, but it's purely oil paint, extruded oil paint on canvas, um, stretched over, you know, like a very traditional material painting, but it does not look traditional at all. So that's my only bedroom piece. And so collecting for me has, because I didn't sort of wake up and have a savings or, you know, stocks and I wanted to diversify or like, I wasn't sort of setting out to be a collector, but I don't really understand the stock market. And um, and I like real estate because it's actually, it's done me real justice. And I and art too, like I, I feel comfortable buying art when I have the money in my account. So early on, if, you know, if I could buy something from Murakami that nobody else wanted, that I schlepped around and he needed cash, if I had the cash, I would buy it. So that's how it kind of started. You know, with Lisa, I fell in love with, you know, one of the small paintings and she permitted me to buy it. I also just, you know, I look, I look at everything. I always find it fascinating how so few of my colleagues, especially my European and UK colleagues, don't bother looking at other people's programs that much. 
And I really look at everything, you know, I'll spend a good chunk of time at an art fair, you know, before it opens or after it closes, just looking, you know, whether it's a biennial Venice or whatever you, I see things and I, I keep notes and I research. And if it's something that I just really like, and I have the money at the time, I buy it. (laughs) And that's how I collect. My collection is, it reflects that. It's really eclectic. I don't have a specific kind of taste. I would like to think that I have a specific kind of, there's a rigor. And there are things that I, that I bought for myself that have nothing to do with the market at all. It was just like, I, ha- I can afford this right now. And I have this like desire. I just want to live with this thing. I think over time, you know, I'm 55. As I get older, it is unwieldy to have so much art, a beautiful thing. I've done my best to, you know, do some donating here and there. It's very tax efficient for anyone who needs tax advice. You know, I've I've given things to, you know, LACMA and big, big museums. If you give to university museums, they really, you know, whether it's the Cantor at Stanford or MIT or, you know, the Nasher at Duke, they really take these artists that are living right now and they put them out there and they have students come and dialogue around them. And that's an amazing thing. So, you know, to have a younger artist get acquired by MoMA is an amazing thing, but you're not going to see it on the walls for a really, really long time. So, yeah, so I've started really thinking about, you know, if I had, if I had my druthers, if I, if I owned 25 pieces of art and that was it, I would be happy, but that is not the case. It's a big responsibility. It really is. Yes. Yes. I have been thinking a lot about the balance between responsibility and freedom, being responsible for myself, being responsible for my children, being responsible for my institution, being responsible for our staff. I would love you to talk about the balance that you have struck, and that may not even be the right word, but to talk about how you've approached being a mom and being in the art world. Well, as you can attest, I'm sure I would say every, I've had the gallery 26, 27 years. So I would say every five to seven years, it's changed dramatically. So I think that when I first started out, I didn't have a kid. Um, and I remember seeing, you know, colleagues that, you know, over time did start having children and they would schlep them to art fairs. And I would say, oh my God, I'll never do that. I mean, ugh, you know, and then when I had my child at 37, I, I wasn't going to leave her ever. Uh, I just, you know, I'm, I'm very type A. If I'm going to do something, I do it all the way. So, okay, I'm a full-time gallerist. I guess I'll just also be a full-time mother. And that was just like, that's what you do. They say that if you have more than one kid, your love doubles, right? So you can't <laughs> you can accommodate. So I just, that's what I did. And I made that decision. It was, and I remembered like, you know, nursing my daughter in my closet at the freeze booth and, and remembering how snide I had felt about other women who do that and feeling guilty that they were doing something that felt so right. At the same time, we did that in a way that was quiet and a little bit hidden. And it was sort of like, you know, you're liberated because you can do this. No one's allowed to say anything anymore. That was my freedom into my, you know, 30s and into my mid 40s. And then in my mid 40s, 
I met Diana Al-Hadid, who's no longer working with the gallery, but she had a child and, um, and her career was blossoming and she was being invited to do talks at museums and do shows. And she was nursing and she said, what's the budget for my nanny and, and, you know, travel and everything. And I was like, well, no, there's a budget for you. And here's the thing. You're so successful that you can afford to bring your nanny and your kid and whoever else you want. And you don't have to ask for that money. And she was like, but if men had boobs, they would ask for that money and they'd get it. And I was like, no, 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 we're liberated. We've gotten there. We have, we look, we're free. We're, we're not making exactly what men make, but we're making a lot more. I mean, you're, you're doing really well. You should be super happy. We had such a long discussion and it, it started out almost like an argument. I was like, why would you? And I said, you know, if these are nonprofit spaces. Why would you burden them by asking for two extra plane tickets and, you know, extra rooms and extra everything? I said, you can't do that. And she was like, maybe you can't, but I can. <laughs> And it was like a revelation. Um, and it opened my eyes that like, yeah, you know what? This this generation that's the one right behind mine has a different set of rules that they feel are fully reasonable. I mean, when, when I had a kid, you kind of kept her hidden in the closet, right? You know, I mean, artists didn't, like if you showed up with your kids, like Rachel Feinstein would show up with her kids and she felt that she was really maligned for doing that. You know, Sarah mm-hmm. Z happened to move to, Boston when she had her kids coincidentally. And and I think she felt it was a relief not to be under the spotlight in New York with kids because there was a sense of women that aren't, you know, they're not serious. And I I remember actually really well in Venice and it's Venice taxi. And Jerry Saltz will kill me for telling the story. And he probably doesn't remember, but the gallery is maybe five or six years old. I wasn't married, didn't have kids. And I was like a workaholic on a mission. And he was like, you know, thumbs up. The gallery's doing well. Just don't do that stupid thing and get married and have kids. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I mean, imagine that now. And I think it's so beautiful that artists like Diana will stand up and say, no, you know, I, I'm nursing. So I shouldn't have to have extra stress because the person who half made this baby, you know, it doesn't make sense. So I'm really trying to listen and be open because, you know, I also felt like I was an incredibly progressive and liberal person when it came to race. And after George Floyd, when I looked at my numbers, I looked at my stats, at my staff, at my vendors, at my, you know, artist roster, you know, we were okay. We were diverse, but we were not nearly okay enough. You know, here I am, a progressive liberal. So I'm imagining what anyone a little less progressive might have, Right. I think being open to change is so important. And, you know, because systems are really hard to break down. Our generation of women broke something down by being allowed to do what we want as long as nobody is bothered by it. This generation is saying, well, we want to do what we want and nobody should be bothered by it. So they should actually help. (laughs) And I, that's been an incredible eye opener and I love it. I'm thrilled. I mean, for my daughter, who's 18, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So who you referenced Friedrich in terms of a a longtime collaboration and partnership, who would you say have been mentors for you? Um, That's a good question. I would say that, you know, the art world is not 
very warm and fuzzy, especially in our end of it as, you know, gallery to gallery. It's extremely competitive and cutthroat. And I think that it's really hard to carve out a mentorship relationship, but it's really easy to have admiration and to pay attention. And the people that I've paid a lot of attention to, I mean, like Paula Cooper has been super kind. We share Jennifer Bartlett. She's been, I can't say a mentor because there's not enough time for that to be, but she's somebody I feel safe and comfortable and admire. Um, Andrea Rosen for a long time was a, a, a friend, you know, she and I really would have, you know, good talks about stuff when things were stressful. But when I think about who I I would aspire to be, you know, I think about the Marion Goodmans, you know, Paula, Barbara, I mean, these, these women, they don't need 14 spaces across every continent and they probably make more money than all the boys do, you know, and if that's the goal, they're doing pretty well. They have amazing artists and they have a quality of life, I hope, because I I would like to have one one day that doesn't require that they have, you know, the biggest, you know, appendage and <laughs> they don't need to like spread around the world. They know who they are and they know what they're doing and they know what they have and and they just do it really well. So yeah. that would be what I would aspire to. I wish that there was a more mentoring type engagement possible, but it's really hard. Even when you share artists, women to women, it becomes a very difficult dynamic and it's, I wish it didn't. Yeah. What kind of things are you hoping to do over the next few years? Hmm. (laughs) There's, I've got a, a couple of things that I'm working on that I feel excited about and engaged with that I'm not really totally ready to talk about yet. Change is so important. And I used to think it was like a new space every 10 years. And that is important to give the artists. I remember you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking a little more differently, you know, than that. And um, and I'm excited for it. As hard as it's going to be to have my daughter leave for college, it's going to be also a strangely liberating thing to not be kind of dancing around her schedule and to be fully free to be traveling the way I was before I had her. I have no no regrets. I've loved every second of it. And I love being home. And frankly, I really love being home. <laughs> but I do know that having the freedom, like the mental freedom of being in different places to be able to engage and, you know, learn without having to rush is really yeah. important to. I'm sure you feel that too. It's like you want to rush home to be home, to be the mom. And, yeah. uh, but you also want to be where you need to be and really present. For it. So it's hard. I mean, have you with the emptiness had felt more freedom? I mean, my kids, as you know, went to boarding school and, and so that changed my circumstance day to day four years ago. And at first there was definitely like an exhale in a certain way. I mean, I, I did this show and actually with Courtney Finn at the Aspen Art Museum some years ago, which was about ritual. And I spent about a year asking people, you know, what do you do every day that you most look forward to? And what do you do every day, right, that you most dread? And at the time, the thing I most dreaded was the morning dog walk. And I know some people, that's like the thing they most look forward to, you know, but for me in Aspen, in the dark, with the ice, like I dreaded that so much. 
And it, it actually caused me to change that part of my life because I was like, how many times am I going to tell people that I dread the morning dog walk and still do it, you know? And, and I don't do this every day because my kids aren't home every day. And the thing that I most dread is, is figuring out what everyone's going to eat for dinner, thinking about, about feeding everyone. I mean, I really, I dread it. You know, it just doesn't come easy for me. And so at first, yes, there was like a, a kind of relief around that, you know, the release of, of the tyranny of planning everyone's food. <laughs> And um, I'm very interested in, in what you said about the idea of rushing. I don't want to rush anymore. I, I don't want to rush anymore. So I, I hope for me, over the next few years, what I can not do is, is rush. So thank you for expressing it in that way. I really second that. That's going to be a beautiful thing. So, yeah. Did you, yeah. Do you know Anthony Huberman well? Yeah, he when he was in New York, he was running a program, a nonprofit program that was all about it was like, you know, how slow food became a thing. It was this was slow art. He was interested yes. in one yes. artist and spending the entire year just thinking about that one artist. And I thought, wow, I'm jealous. <laughs> Wouldn't yeah. that be indulgent? And um, it's it's really it, that's gonna be a nice thing just to have that more, you know, free mental time. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I forgot about that program. Mm. And yeah. that was very cool. That was yeah. very cool. Yeah, he's Marianne, what I was going to say is if, if, if the audience didn't figure it out yet, we're very good friends and, and we, we have, have been for a long well. time. Long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I love doing these podcasts in general and it's a particular treat for me when I get to be in conversation with someone that I know well and for a long time and, and who I respect and admire like I, I do with you. So thank you so much for, for taking the time today to have this conversation. I'm grateful. Thank you for inviting me. I'm grateful. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Join us in two weeks when my guest is the museum director extraordinaire and really incredibly creative member of the art world and exhibition space builder, Jerome Sands. He and I talk about how to make museums different, what we hope our visitors will experience, why we think it's important to create the museum of the 21st century. We have a lot of commonality about our approach though we've worked in very different places and spaces, and I know you'll enjoy it. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being a part of our community.